Hey folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, a podcast from Just the News. Yep, you know where we are. What a day. Day four of the Afghan debacle and some momentous shifts in the storyline, in the narrative, and the consequences that all Americans are going to face as a result of the bungled exit from Afghanistan. And today we've got a very special show. I'm really excited about this. We have two guests in almost identical circumstances doing the same thing in the country with the same background at this same extraordinary moment in time. What an incredible opportunity. We have joining us today two U.S. veterans of the Afghanistan war, people who really put it on the line for us to fight the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and to bring some form and semblance of security to Afghanistan to achieve the American objective. Their names are Joe Kent and Tom Norton. Joe Ken is from the state of Washington. Tom Norton is from the state of Michigan. They both serve their country ably. They have a lot to say about this extraordinary debacle of an exit, but they're also doing something else. Their service to their country isn't ending with their service in the military. Both of them have given greatly, and they have given back. Joe's wife is also in the service, and she was killed tragically two years ago, so he knows the ultimate price as a gold star widower. And uh, Tom Norton came back from his tour of duty and created programs to help veterans who were dealing with suicide and uh, suicidal ideation. These are people that kept giving and giving and giving and they're giving again. And here's how. Both of these men, both of these veterans, both of these American heroes are running for Congress and they're both challenging Republicans who some believe are rhinos. That's other people's decision, not my term, but they're challenging two Republicans who have not been in lockstep with Donald Trump and the main part of the Republican Party. You're going to hear from them both. First about what they think about the Afghan withdrawal, which was so terribly failed, and then what could come in these elections and what's at stake in the aftermath of the Afghan collapse. Really an incredible show. We're going to get to both in a second, but I want to point out some reporting that we've had on the site. We've done really good exclusive reporting today. And the first is answering the question, what did President Biden know and when did he know it? When he came out July 8th and said, I have confidence the country won't fall and that the Afghan army will prevail, what did he know? Well, 
we put out into the public domain this morning, hundreds of pages of documents showing the president, his team was warned by the chief watchdog in Afghanistan, the American watchdog called the Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction, John Sapko, by the intelligence community, by military commanders on the ground, that the Afghan army was going to have a glass chin. They were going to collapse. Why? They couldn't even refuel their vehicles properly. 50% of the fuel was stolen each week. Their readiness on the Air Force, which we turned over the keys of aerial attacks to, our forces, another tragic decision potentially that Joe Biden made. We stopped doing bombing sorties. We turned it over the Afghans. Their readiness precipitously declined in June, just a few weeks before the president made that promise to the American people. We know they're worried about defections and loyalty to their tribe over military command. We knew that they were being overrun in the early battles All of those documents, all those official government documents sitting in plain view called open source intelligence was available to President Biden and his team. And yet he still made those claims and he executed the strategy. And when we talked to people and you heard Mike Flynn yesterday on the podcast, they said one thing, giving back the Bagram Air Base to the Afghans and watching it fall to the Taliban a few weeks later was a tragic strategic mistake because it took away one of our most safe exit routes from the country. Yet last night we heard Jake Sullivan say he doesn't even know how many Americans there are and whether they'll all get out. Wait, you had seven months to plan for this. We had 20 years to wait for this moment. How do we not know how many Americans or how many Afghan loyalists to the United States need to be evacuated and where they are? That is mismanagement 101. All of that is sitting in these documents. You can read it. It's on the front page of justinnews.com. Now, a second thing we have to watch out for, Afghanistan is likely to fall into civil war again. So all of our efforts to get the Afghan country beyond its violence, to get some form of stability, look like they're going backwards. My colleague Susan Keating has a great story on the resistance that's being created in the northern part of the country and how a north-south civil war in Afghanistan is likely to resume as our boots on the ground finally exit. So we have to worry first whether we're going to get all the Americans out safely and our allies out safely and our Afghan partners out safely. Then we have to worry about the civil war beginning and overrunning all that we have. We have to worry about all of our armaments we're leaving behind that the Afghan army abandoned, going to be in the hand of the Taliban, which probably means they go to to Russia and to China and to other enemies, right? And then we have a third worry from the lips of General Milley, the man chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff who oversaw this bungled exit, who told senators on Sunday night, according to the senators, that the mission that we had to eradicate Afghanistan as a center for potential terrorist attacks will have eroded within two years, less than two years, he said, Afghanistan can and likely will be a base where terrorist attacks will be launched against the Americans across the globe. What an ultimate price to pay, 20 years and we're still going to have the same scenario we dealt with in the weeks before 9-11. That is what is at stake in Afghanistan. That is what is at stake in the Biden presidency. This is a seminal and critical moment in the presidency. And the biggest sign that the president is in trouble is not just the images, not just his plummeting popularity rating, not just the challenges he faces in the next few weeks about getting Americans out safely. His own party... Three senior Democrats announced yesterday they're going to investigate Joe Biden. They used the harshest terms. They they were using terms harsher than Republicans in some cases. Joe Biden is in trouble with his own party. And those hearings, those investigations are going to be played out 
on the Washington stage as we head into the 2022 campaign. What a gift for Republicans, politically speaking. What a travesty for the Biden administration, a potential death knell for some of its key players. And maybe the president himself will find himself uh, in a quagmire he can't get uh, free from. And the American people will have to feel these consequences for weeks and months to come. That's why we write, reported the stories we did yesterday at Justin News. Check it out. One more breaking news. This just happened a few minutes ago. We told you first. A month ago, this would happen. We were first. We've been on Fulton County like butter on bread, right? And we told you about the 29 pages of mistakes. We told you about the changing of ballots during adjudication. We told you about the temporary workers that were t- talking about messing up the election, going there, being paid, and then mess up the election. We told you about voter privacy being pierced, about ballots being double scanned, about ballots being transported outside of secure boxes like they were supposed to be. All of that, right, added up. And then we brought Brad Raffsenberger on this show, the Secretary of State of Georgia, and he told us, I think it's time to take Fulton County into state receivership. Well, guess what? Today, the Georgia State Elections Board voted unanimously to begin that process of a takeover in, in Fulton County. It begins with an investigative panel going and seeing if they can corroborate the things that we've already reported here at Just the News. And when that finishes up, well, then the state has the potential opportunity to take receivership of Fulton County elections and run it so that it'll be more competent, more effective, more trusted for the people of Atlanta. That's who wins by this decision. It's not a Republican-Democrat decision. It's the assurance that maybe for the first time in many years, Atlanta area voters will feel like their votes counted and they counted properly and they were treated properly. And the absolute disgraceful way that ballots were counted in November will no more be a spectacle. That is breaking news. It happened this afternoon. Brad Raffsenberger reacted almost immediately saying this is welcome news. Good for Atlanta. Good for Georgia. I would argue good for America. That happened. And keep in mind, it was right here on John Solomon Reports and Just the News that many, if not most, of the Georgia revelations were brought to light. We're so grateful to play a role in that. And we're glad to see downstream impact from meaningful reporting. That happened today. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Joe Kent, Tom Norton, two American heroes, two Afghan war veterans, two Republicans running for Congress who first are trying to unseat Republicans in Congress. Yes, the consequences of anti-Trump Republicanism are going to be on display in these two men's races. We're going to get to that right after this commercial break. Temp check. What kind of summer are we having this year? A family road trip summer, a beach bum summer, or a wake me up when the sun sets summer? With Instacart, choose your own adventure and skip the shopping side quests. Where available, you can get ice cream delivered to your hotel, sunscreen to the pool, or cold brew to your bed. Well, door in as fast as 30 minutes. Wherever you find yourself this summer, you can get the goods. Download Instacart for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. All right, folks, welcome back for the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest, a guest that this country owes an enormous debt to. And yet, despite all he's already sacrificed, he is once again throwing his hat into the ring of public service, running for Congress in the great state of Washington. Joining us right now is a great military veteran, a gold star widower, a true American hero, Joe Kent. Joe, welcome to the show. 
Thank you so much for having me on. It is an honor. And I, I you know, I always love when someone's running for office uh, to begin just by introducing who they are as a person. So many times politicians become sort of blurs for people, but you have this amazing um, uh, story that your, uh, your service to your country, the cost to your family. Tell us just a little bit about you and your, your experience and what drove you to run for Congress. Yeah, well, I uh, pretty much as far back as I can remember uh, growing up, I just wanted to serve the country. I was just inspired by the people in our society that would step forward from this life of uh, comfort that we have here and go fight for our nation overseas. So when I turned 18, I joined the Army, enlisted as an infantryman, worked my way into Ranger Regiment and then into Special Forces. Wow. About a year later, right as I was coming into Special Forces, 9-11 happened, and that kind of set the trajectory <laughs> for the uh, the next you know, essentially the, the formation of my adult life, really fighting more overseas. So I did 11 combat deployments. In that time, I met my late wife, Shannon Kent, who was also in the military, yeah. a veteran of our war. She was a trailblazer in the special operations community. And she was tragically killed about uh, two and a half years ago fighting ISIS in Syria. Mm. She was killed a month after Trump attempted to get our troops out of Syria the first time. So my wife would be alive to this day, her and three other great Americans, had the orders of President Trump been followed, but we all remember what happens. Secretary mm -hmm. of Defense Mattis, uh, Brett McGurk, unelected bureaucrats, conducted bureaucratic slow roll. The media really co-opted that because they hated Trump so much. And our troops remained in, in Syria. They remain there to this day in, in harm's way for no clear national security objective. But despite all the personal grief I was going through, I personally had to step away from government service. I had just transitioned into my second career in the CIA. Right. I resigned from that job because I have two young sons and I wanted to focus on them. But I also knew, based on my experience overseas fighting these wars, that President Trump had gotten it right. I, I was an early supporter of President Trump because of his foreign policy stances. So I started speaking out on his behalf to kind of articulate my uh, ground truths that Trump was trying to bring into the policy realm. And so that kind of put me in contact with, with the Trump administration. I got an invitation to go work in the second Trump administration. At the same time, I'm from the Pacific Northwest, and I moved my family back here to get closer to, to my parents. And then 2020 happened, the lockdowns, which are extremely draconian here on the West Coast. And then the Antifa violence just was absolutely brutal coming out of Portland into the district that I had chosen to live in. And so after the election, I knew I needed to do something. And then Jamie Herrera Butler, the, the Republican congresswoman, who, whose district I chose to live in, who I actually voted for, she voted to certify the election that I had many problems with. And then she voted for the impeachment of President Trump. And so I just saw this as a, as a call to arms, like, hey, it's time to stand up and fight for the country. Or I'm not going to be able to look my two sons in the eyes and explain to them that this is the country that their mother gave her life for. Mm, man, that is uh, something your, your wife's story is so heart-wrenching too, man. She was killed, obviously, in the, in the terrorist bomb back in 2019 in Syria. And there have been a lot of questions about the Navy's uh, conduct and, and just about the decision making that went on. But you yes. and all those aside, and maybe you want to talk about those because you talk about uh, uh, unelected bureaucrats having these extraordinary powers. And it's so true. They make decisions that sometimes defy both common sense and the law, the rules and the, and the uh, directions that a president gives. But your commitment and her commitment, the love for the country. I've seen the photos of you guys together and you just realize for all the things that we sometimes hear the media complain about in country, there are all these uh, quiet heroes like you and your wife who didn't ask for any glory. You just went in and made a difference. And um, we, we really mourn alongside inside you with, with her loss. It's unreal. What was the biggest lesson you learned from that? I mean, you, some lawmakers have dug in about her deployment and did the bureaucracy really let us down in this case? 
It really did. I, I mean, long story short, it, my wife had put in a packet to go become a, a psychiatrist, right. a military psychiatrist. She was kind of also on the front lines of our military health crisis when she was deployed to Afghanistan in 2012. She was deployed with a SEAL team and the SEAL team commander ended up committing suicide over oh. there. And so she decided that she was like, hey, from the perspective that I have, I want to go become a psychiatrist. It also gave her the ability because we had just had our two sons to have a more normal life, as normal yeah. as we could be, to be able to be home with the kids at night. But when you go from enlisted to officer in the military, and this is kind of some catch-22 military jargon, they hold you to the standards called the session standards, like you just come in the military, as opposed to retention standards, which the military realizes in order to stay in the military – they kind of bend the rules a little bit or they're more lax because they realize that you have some mileage on you. So they told my wife that she couldn't go become an officer, even though she'd been, be, been accepted into this program because Unreal. she previously had thyroid cancer. So she, she had cancer. She missed like two days of work to have it cut out. I was actually deployed to Iraq when she had it. She didn't even tell me about it. She just sent me a picture of like this scar on her throat and said like I had a little bit of cancer snipped out. But because of that, they wouldn't let her become an officer. But so by Navy standards, she wasn't fit enough to sit in a classroom, but she was fit enough to deploy with a special operations task force to the front lines of Syria. Oh, my God. Isn't it just, it's just maddening when you see this? Uh, she wrote a letter, didn't she, to Senator McCain before he passed? She did. She wrote a letter to pretty much any senator or congressman who would listen. I actually yeah. drove her to the Capitol and she went through the Rayburn building and, and knocked on doors and said, hey, this is happening in our military. I'm not the only one. We need to change this. We need to fix this. She wasn't able to make it happen um, while she was alive. Uh, mm. After she was killed, we, we took this to the Secretary of the Navy and said, you need to fix this on behalf of my yeah. wife. This is the fight that she started. And, and to their credit, they, they did. And there's now a regulation named after her that allows enlisted people to have multiple reviews if they're putting in their packet to become an officer. There's a line in the letter that uh, I saw this as I was researching that it's so prophetic when I look at it now, but she wrote to Senator McCain, if we are healthy enough to deploy worldwide, which she was, uh, why are we not healthy enough to pursue officer programs? Thank God that even in her passing, she created some good in getting that silly role changed. And we really honor you and her both for all the sacrifices you made. 11 deployments is, is jaw-dropping. It's just jaw-dropping. And we're so lucky to have men and women like you and your wife uh, who served us. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. So Thank now you. you find yourself in a different type of warfare, right? Politics. And you're challenging a Republicans uh, for the uh, nomination. Tell us a little bit about why you would do that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think the way that we've seen the, the establishment, the permanent ruling class of our country and Republicans are included in this really mobilize and move against the American people, the working class, your average everyday Americans for the benefit of really just the government apparatus. And then above that, I think the major corporations, the technocrats and, and, and the uh, oligarchs of our country. And we've really seen this come to light with COVID. We saw this come to light with the election, but it's been a gradual thing. And this woman that I'm running against, Jamie Herrera Butler, she made herself vulnerable by voting for the impeachment of President Trump. But Prior to that, I mean, she did some major damage to this country. I think voting to certify the election where there was obvious discrepancies, any elected leader that's not going to fight for the integrity of our elections is violating their most sacred duty to the American people. We have this amazing system where we get to choose those that have power over us. And to not safeguard that, I just think is absolutely unacceptable. And then even before that, I mentioned the we're our district for people who aren't familiar with, we're right on the, the Washington side of the Columbia River. So right. Southwest Washington, we're essentially a suburb of Portland, Oregon. 
So the Antifa violence having us crammed between Portland and Seattle has really crept into this district. It's something that affects us deeply. It makes the news every now and again, but it has absolutely deteriorated law and order in our district. And Jamie Herrera Butler, she said nothing as Antifa marched into our district. She said nothing until it was time to cross the aisles, vote with the Democrats and prevent Trump from being able to deploy the National Guard into (laughs) Portland to quell the Antifa violence. And then she's also she's horrible on law and order. She was one of the Republicans that also voted to stop the construction of the southern border wall. So just last weekend, I took a real quick trip down to Yuma, Arizona. Representative Paul Gosar hosted me. He gave me a great tour of the border. He showed me where the border wall had been erected and and then really where it stops. Where where I, I watched illegal immigrants just flow right around this wall. And then he took me to where the incomplete sections of the wall that the U.S. taxpayers that we all paid for are laying in the desert. All they need to do is be put up. But because Jamie Vera Butler and Republicans and Democrats voted to stop the construction of the border wall, the money was already spent. So now this sections of wall are just laying there in the Yuma desert with literally illegal immigrants stepping over it or walking around. It's, it's insane to see. And again, being stuck between Portland and Seattle, which are both sanctuary cities, yeah. my district is essentially a border town. So we've seen a massive uptick in narcotics and illegal immigration and just criminal activity. And two weeks ago, we had a sheriff's deputy killed in the line of duty yeah, in our district. We he was wrote killed about that. Counter- yeah, he was killed doing a counter-narcotics operation. And to me, that's I directly feel that because that's a failure of policy. And my wife died because of a failure of policy. I think people forget sometimes in politics that the decisions that our policymakers make, they affect the lives of everyday Americans who are trying to do the right thing, whether it's serving the country overseas, serving the community as a police officer or just being a taxpayer trying to make their way in the world. And so to me, that's that's why I'm in this fight. The establishment has absolutely failed us and we need to take our country back. It is an amazing moment. And I, these two themes, first, common sense has just evaded so much of American policymakers. You just scratch your head and then you see the, the power of these unelected bureaucrats and the two together have driven this country to uh, a, a very dire state. And then one of the things that I, uh, I I see, and I really want to ask you this, because you, you sacrificed so much in, in the war against terrorism. The last nine days in Afghanistan, uh, those two forces are clearly at work. They First, the American country has been misled. Second, um, uh, we, we just completely bungled. The Bay of Pigs looks like a, an organized operation when you look at how we get out of Afghanistan. What does it feel like for you, for someone who fought uh, and gave so much to see how the American policy and the execution of that policy let us down over the last week or two? You know, it's horrible to see I think we've all known it for a very long time that this was going to be the eventual conclusion for anybody who studied the region, anyone Mm -hmm. who read the Afghan papers that came out, anyone who served over there, we've known that the Taliban coming back was going to be the eventual conclusion. This Afghan government and military that we were building, it really only existed in the minds of politicians and people in think tanks and then people in the media who who, amplified this message, this this false narrative. The thing is, when we went into Afghanistan after 9-11, we went in for the right reasons. We had to go take out al-Qaeda and the Taliban that gave them sanctuary. We accomplished that mission really fast with dedicated special operations and CIA uh, operations. But the problem is, once bin Laden and crew escaped into Pakistan, Bush, he said it. He said he, he had changed his mind. He wanted to make this the ultimate nation building project because really these small surgical special operations missions, they're not huge booms for the military industrial complex. What the military industrial complex wants to do is go and build up these nations. So the whole system that feeds the brain trust of the national security state, that's what they sold to George Bush. 
And then from there, we just continued to double and triple down on that. Iraq came next. And so it was just lie after lie. The military industrial complex, the generals, they misled the Obama administration. They outright sabotaged the Trump administration. The media let them do it. Obama, I think, was skilled enough at manipulating the media that he was able to sell it all as a good thing. But the media outright helped sabotage the Trump administration as they tried to get out. But the result remained the same. We, we stayed in these wars. We continued to believe. We continued to spend all this money. What I think happened with Biden is he wanted to have his cake and eat it too. He didn't want to give Trump the victory of following Trump's withdrawal plan in May. So he's kind of like the guy that's riding the crocodile, hoping it eats him last. <laughs> he knew the generals had been lying. Yep. He knew that. I know he's mentally declining now, but he's an experienced guy. Yep. But he trusted them momentarily. And they said, hey, sir, it will hold. Afghanistan will hold at least until September. So Biden was like, OK, I can't go off Trump's plan. I'm going to say I got to fix a couple things, but we're still getting out in September. That way, I'm not doing exactly what Trump said. Mm. And the generals, meanwhile, said, OK, we just did what we did to the last two administrations. We got him to extend a little bit. We'll yep. just come back to him in September and August and say, hey, sir, it's got to be six more months. It's got to yep. be 18 more months because that's what they've been saying for decades now. But Biden yeah, yeah. wasn't having it. And he, he said, pull them out. But the generals had no plan. They had no intention of having us pull out. That's why it's so sloppy right now. So yeah. I think it's horrible what's going on right now. Biden, by having the hubris to say that he wouldn't do Trump's plan, he gave the Taliban three months of prime fighting season yeah. time to plan this offensive. And they he took gave that's on him. Yeah. And they took the air cover away. One of the things Trump did in yep. 2019, 20, while he was drawing down in extensive ways, is he kept the air war going. And anytime the Taliban reared their head, there's nothing that strikes more fear into the um, the eyes of a Taliban. Uh, well, maybe a special forces guy showed up with uh, like you might scare the hell out of him, too. But a predator coming over the ridge, that is a single thing. And we took all that oh, away. Yeah. The sorties went nowhere that we went down to like 700 sorties. That's right. That's right. And, you know, the enemy knew with Trump, especially after he killed Qasem Soleimani, yep. hey, if you push us too far, like we will come back and we will hurt you. And oh, no yeah. other president's done that. And right now the Taliban knows like they can actually they can push it. They're not scared of Biden. So it's a really it's it's a it's a perfect storm right now of the military being caught off guard because they thought they could continue to slow roll this. A weak president who was attempting to be politically savvy and it kind of blew up in his face. Yep. And that's the situation that we're in right now. There's a moment in July that I, I'm really focused on, because to me, it's the moment when the American people got the biggest bill of bogus goods that they've ever bought in this war. And we've gotten a lot of them, right? But Joe Biden, and then a few days later, when he wasn't talking about his inner white privilege that he was trying to get in touch with General Milley, both yeah. said, looked into the camera to the American people and said, the 300,000 well-trained Afghan soldiers that we put together are going to be able to hold off just the 75,000 uh, 75, Taliban. And I yeah. spent the last day going through public source information, just what the special inspector general of Afghanistan was writing at the moment that the president said that in, you know, in June and July, he dropped a bunch of reports. The Afghan army can't even fuel its trucks properly. It, it, they have more allegiance to the feudal warlords than they do to the chain of command. They don't have the Air Force really does not have the capability that we've been lying to them about. So like six or seven observations. And there's no way Joe Biden does he get that intel. It's sitting right in front of him. And Biden right. and Milley back to back looked into the camera and said, those guys have got it. We'll be OK. Are you convinced at that moment they lied? Absolutely. Yes, 100%. I think Biden thought that maybe they would last a little bit longer, but yep. he knew. He knew it was a lie. And then Millie and those guys, 
I mean, I really think that they thought that they were just going to get to extend this thing. So they knew that they were lying. But you know what? In that moment, they probably would have passed a polygraph because they've been conditioned to lie for so long. They were brought up through the ranks the last couple of decades. These guys were like colonels when these wars started. They just believed it, right? A lie. Yeah. It was, it's not even lying anymore. It's just like, hey, if we see the Afghan security forces and we give them a bunch of things, we call that success. They did the same thing in Iraq and we saw the Iraqi army crumble the second ISIS and a bunch of rusty, stolen Syrian tanks rolled across the border. They dropped all their brand new American-made hardware and fled. I mean, it's the same thing here in Afghanistan. So I I think they probably didn't even necessarily know. I'm not trying to give them an out. I'm just saying the culture is. But they definitely- was well infused. They definitely lied. And Um, yesterday, I mean, as bad as Biden's speech was with passing the buck, I would have had more respect for him if he would have come out and said, I'm firing the secretary of defense, the CENTCOM commander and the chairman. I'd had a lot more respect if he would have done that. But there was a lot in his speech where he said that, hey, like we've we've tried this uh, long enough. I don't want anyone else to die. I'm not going to pass this war over. I was actually nodding my head and saying, like, you know what? Like, I, I hate it that it took him this long to get to this point, yeah. but I agree with him. Yeah, listen, uh, if that speech is given uh, five, six months ago as a justification for getting out, he and Donald Trump are on the same page. The problem is it's not about the decision to get out because, one, it's enormously popular. Two, it's the right thing to do. But it's the, it's the short-term execution that just leaves America with this unbelievable black eye. You got China in the last yeah. 72 hours, you know, agitating. They're going to go take Taiwan. And <laughs> Taiwan, you can't count on America. Look what they just did to the Afghanistan. PSYOPs, military, domino effect. All of this is going to be profound. Right. Uh, you, you mentioned the industrial military complex, which was a great term originally coined by uh, Dwight Eisenhower, I think was the first to most famously use it. But... Describe for people, because you've seen this firsthand now, these generals, when they're when they're writing their policy, they're also preparing for the moment when they're retiring outright and they want to get on the boards of all of these defense contractors to get their gravy train posts here. So this can you describe a little bit of the symbiotic relationship between why the generals like to keep extending war? You'd say, well, no general wants war. But the truth of the matter is there's a financial incentive to keep war going personally for them. Right. There most certainly is. Yeah. And especially the conventional military and and by that for non-military folks, I mean, the guys that are from like the conventional traditional infantry armor branches or in the Navy, the guys that are, you know, responsible for fleets and all that. The incentive system is always to continue to ply your trade. I mean, if you're no matter what trade you're in, you want to do it. You just don't want to practice it. So the military is always going to have this inclination, especially in all volunteer force. I'm proud of the fact that I was in a all-volunteer force and I was a volunteer within the volunteers. Yeah. But the danger of an all-volunteer force is that we are going to want to go to war. And that's a good thing because we're going to be good at actually going out and, and plying our trade. And by plying right. our trade, I mean actually going out and smashing and destroying things. We're absolutely terrible at building nations. I, think, I hope we've learned that by now. I don't know if we have, but that's what the data suggests. But with the people that are in charge of these very powerful institutions like the DOD, they're going to develop relationships with the defense contractors who are supplying them with all this hardware. Once you have all this hardware, you have to go use it. It's just this, this circular system that really, hey, if you have a great military and they're highly trained, you want to deploy them and then you're going to need more hardware. And so then when those guys retire, you, you hire them to go sell the hardware back to the military or go to a think tank that comes up with reasons and places that we need to go to war. So it's just a very circular system within the Pentagon and the greater DC beltway. And so there is always going to be this massive draw to keep us at war, to start new wars. And that's something that 
I think we have to be really careful with, especially with an all-volunteer force and our, and our political leaders, and I even mean our congressional leaders, because I think Congress has been out to lunch since 9-11, with a few exceptions, like a few random congressmen and senators here and there. But they've been out to lunch on their oversight duties and their ability to declare war. It should have been reined in a long time ago. But again, all-volunteer force gives them that luxury. Every senator and congressman doesn't have you know, the parents of draftees beating down their door saying, hey, why are you sending my kid to war like we had in Vietnam? So we have a very dangerous system right now where we can wage these wars that benefit the ruling class, but don't actually affect everyday America and everyday Americans in the way that it used to. So we need leaders that understand that responsibility. And I think we've just strayed very far from that. Yeah, it is such a amazing moment. And the consequences, I mean, there's obviously the consequence to Afghanistan is irrefutable now, and we're going to see a very difficult period for our, our former friends there, but the, or our current friends there, the, uh, the long-term thing, there's two things that struck me in the last 24 seven, uh, the 72 hours. One is Millie going to uh, the Senate and briefing them and saying, hey, we're moving up our timetable. We think that terrorism could be restored in Afghanistan and strike America in less than two years. We just spent 20 years saying we were going to get terrorism so that Afghanistan couldn't be a, a bed, you know, a launching pad for it. Now it seems like we're, we're resigned to the possibility it could happen in less than two years. How frustrating is that for all the sacrifices you and others have given? Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly frustrating, but there's also a gimmick there, too. He's also trying to scare people into letting us stay there or like, hey, we'll go back and it will look more like Iraq after ISIS came back. and There'll still be some military there. Right. I think we just have to realize that there is the potential for terror to arise from multiple parts of, in particular, the Middle East and and Northern Africa. And it's the the responsibility of the intelligence community to be able to, to monitor that. It's an absolute myth that by us going and having these bases in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria, that we're better at preventing attacks against the homeland. Since bin Laden escaped into Pakistan, the vast majority of threats, credible threats against the homeland that have come up have originated from Pakistan or have originated from from Yemen, from Al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula, a whole Al-Qaeda branch just dedicated to doing external operations. We have not done a major ground invasion in Yemen or in Pakistan, we've had some, our dealings with the Pakistani government need to be scrutinized, the way we give foreign aid needs to be scrutinized, but we've had a very limited profile there. It's all been Title 50 intelligence activities. Yemen's the same thing. We've done, actually had our counterterrorism footprint, endured the regime falling there, endured a chaotic civil war, and we're still able to keep the wolves at bay, for lack of a better term. It's a military industrial complex myth that having this, these nation building footprints does anything to help our counterterrorism operations. I think if anything, it just gives bad actors in the region or bad actors throughout the world, the ability to do the one thing that's very hard to do to Americans, reach out and touch them. It's a proxy game. And the last thing you want to give proxies is proximity. If proxies can touch you, then you're playing their game. If they can't touch you, then you get to strike them when you want to. And and I think that that needs to be the, the model that we take towards the region. Yes, such an important thing. Joe, we are so grateful for all that you have done and all that you are setting out to do because this country needs fighters like you, the um, extraordinary 
grit and determination and the sacrifices you and your family have made are, are remarkable. And now the opportunity to move from the battlefield of the military to the battlefield of policy and politics has got to be exciting. And uh, we can't wait to cover your race in this election as it unfolds. Yeah, thank you very much. I really appreciate you having me on. Well, it was a great. I learned a lot from it, and uh, it's always great to learn from a frontline warrior. We get more truth from the front lines than we ever get from the backline policymakers in Washington. So we're grateful. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. We'll be in touch soon. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Thank you, sir. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to be talking Afghanistan. Tom Norton from the state of Michigan right after this commercial break. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And I have a very special guest, somebody who knows Afghanistan close and personal. He served there many times, protected our country. He knows the situation on the ground, and he also knows the important uh, fight for the heart and soul of the Republican Party that's coming ahead. Joining me right now is the congressional candidate from Michigan, Tom Norton, former extraordinary American hero in our armed services. Tom, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me on there. It's an honor to have you on. And I always like when we introduce a new candidate and there's a real phenomenon going on this year where you have these really strong former military uh, experienced uh, candidates challenging Republicans that have uh, not been on uh, the same page with Donald Trump or most of the Republican Party. And you're one of them. What uh, just introduce yourself, though. I think people your story is so amazing. I'd love for people just to get to know who you are as we start this conversation. Sure. Everybody, obviously, my name is Tom Norton. I am running for Congress against Peter Meyer. I am the president of the Michigan Conservative Union. I'm an Afghanistan war veteran, and I was born and raised in the 3rd District. I was actually raised on a small family farm. I use the same farming equipment as my father used when he grew up. Because his words to us were, well, his words were great. It was good enough for me. It's good enough for you. (laughs) So I was, uh, I I mean, picture in the 90s using a 1954 Alice Chalmers. Wow. (laughs) That's classic. 1968, Massey Ferguson hay baler, the whole nine yards. My grandfather used it. And uh, then when the hay wagon broke, my father said, well, you have football coming up, so we don't need, or not the hay wagon, the hay elevator broke. He said, we don't need the elevator. You need to get ready for football. Get on the wagon. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I threw that was your that was your workout wall. session, right? <laughs> oh, I was. I could knock anybody on their butt that football season. I tell you what. <laughs> God bless you, Dad. I love that approach to raising children. Uh, so uh, yeah, so that's uh, that's a little bit of that's kind of there. Um, I'm also the co-founder of West Michigan Veterans Ranch. I did uh, suicide prevention for veterans for oh man many years. Such um, an important then, mission. Yeah, and then, uh, I mean, it got really wearing on me, and it got extremely wearing on me. So I, I'm still involved, but I'm not as involved as I used to be. But I'm still involved on an occasion. I mean, I'm, on, on Monday, obviously, with everything going on, my phone was blowing up all day. Right. And I'll even admit to your audience, it's probably the first time my wife has seen me break down and cry in years, many, wow. many years. Because, and it wasn't, it wasn't even my stress. It was the stress of yep. 15, 20 phone calls throughout the day of people that you help put back together over a decade that are just finally, it's to them a chapter closing. 
Yep. And it's a, it feels like a chapter wasted that they're closing. Like they're deleting an entire 365-page book uh, they spent five years working on is what they feel like. Uh, so, I mean, uh, but that's that's where their perspective comes from on there. So Yeah, no, um, well, they, so, they've earned anyway, that perspective, so, as you have. Yeah, so that, that's a little bit about me. Wow. What an amazing career. What inspired you to run for Congress? I mean, it's a big jump to go from farming and the military to aspiring to represent your constituents in Washington. What was that motivating moment? Well, I was uh, the motivating moment was actually not completely this race. This race, it was easy for me to get back in because Peter Meyer lied to the voters. A lot of us forget that Justin Amash was the first Republican to break, say he was going to vote for impeachment right. of Donald Trump. Well, I was a former village president. And I filed to run because Justin would tell my veterans going through my suicide prevention program, you're not my problem, go to the VA, mm. when they had VA problems. He was a horrible congressman. And so he, all these liberals, I loved him. He was actually really bad at constituent relations. So when I filed to run in there, and I sat down with these other candidates, and none of them were really American first. Peter Meyer would describe himself as America first light. Well, what the heck's America first light? We found that out already, what he meant by that. Um, but so as we went through it, because I was a former village president, we weren't supposed to perform very well. Everybody's like, well, Tom won't get above 5%. And instead we shocked everybody, blew that number out of the water and actually ended up becoming contender with no money. Wow. So I believe we hovered right about 18.9% on the official state results in a five-way race. And Peter did win it. And the other gal who just edged me out by four points spent $2.2 million and came in that far back behind behind Peter Meyer and Peter spent 2.1 million but you got to realize 100% name ID when he filed the run yeah of course so, from the supermarket chain up here in Michigan sure. a huge one and uh, I mean the richest family in Michigan universal name ID and so he should have gotten like 75% and he didn't so that tells you that people were like you know or should we really vote for him so fast forward to now that's what inspired me to run was the West Michigan Veterans Ranch and everything else we were doing with that because I felt veterans should be taken care of. And I wanted an American first policy where we have fair trade deals that benefit American citizens first. I wanted to make sure that every government policy that's passed is benefiting all Americans first, not just a particular group. That's what America first means to me. If you put Americans first, Americans will win, period. So fast forward to now, Peter walked in, voted for the impeachment vote and showed us true colors immediately. And then ever since we filed, look at his train record. He started applauding Joe Biden in April for his handling of Afghanistan, applauding Joe Biden in May for his handling of Afghanistan. He did that in June. He did that July, as recently as two weeks ago. Yep. He's applauding Joe Biden for Afghanistan. He's singing from a different hymnal today, though, I'll tell you. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Monday. Oh, I didn't know this was going to happen. And I know his team's upset because I'm just pounding him like, wait a second. Here's your quotes for four months. And I called him out back then. And they're like, and if you were on the ground in Afghanistan, you saw this coming. And the reason is Obama Biden administration, when I was there in 2012, captured practice capture and release. You capture an Afghan. If he swore he wouldn't pick up a gun back to Americans, uh, shoot at Americans. Right. They let him go. They'd re- they, they let him go. Well, the yeah. thing is, in the Quran, it's okay to lie to an infidel. They're right. fundamental Islamists. You're signing an agreement with an infidel. So to them, they're sitting here like, you're an idiot. <laughs> so, but under Obama, Biden, you could do that. Under Obama, Biden, you couldn't fire until it was fired upon. Under Obama, Biden, you had to sit there and allow these extreme things to happen 
in Afghanistan. If somebody's dropped their gun in the middle of shooting you and pulled out a knife, you couldn't shoot them. You had to try to capture them because they were a non-combatant. The, the gun was out of their hand. You had to disarm a guy with a knife. The cops had more authority than troops under this. So what happened here was the Taliban saw this opportunity. I know I'm getting way ahead of myself, and I'm going That's to okay. probably second no, question, this is actually. important. But when they saw Biden back in, they probably sat there and like, they can just run over this dude. <laughs> it's because they know exactly what they were fighting already. They're fighting somebody that was weak. That's why they were emboldened to do this. And then Biden held back air support. And again, jumping ahead, but you think about this. There's only one man that's responsible that has had more control of Afghanistan than any one politician in America. Joe Biden was chair of the Armed Services Committee for eight years under Bush. He was one of nine men sitting at the table making decisions. Joe Biden is the only man that was at the table, had a voice at the table at the beginning of the war and at the end of it. He has nobody else to blame. That man has had more direct involvement than anyone. Eight years on the Armed Services Committee, eight years as vice president, and now seven months in the White House. So, I mean, as things continue to go on, my inspiration to run gets more and more aggressive and more and more emboldened because I cannot stand and watch everything everybody's done get flushed down a toilet by the same guy that helped run it for that long. He has nobody else to blame but himself. Over 16 years, 75% of this war, he's been involved. Yeah, and and it was the original sponsor of the legislation to move the military from its military actions into nation building. He did the first multi-billion dollar nation building uh, legislation that you know changed the role of the military. And the other day he had the audacity when he was on, on uh, the front uh, uh, podium to say, I never believed in nation building. He's the man that sponsored the legislation that started us on this 20 year path. Now I wanna, I wanna take you for a moment because you've got two people that sounded awful a lot alike on this issue, which is Peter Meyer, your potential oppo- your opponent in the Republican race here, and Joe Biden both have said this week, we didn't see this coming. We had no idea the Afghan uh, army would uh, collapse. And I'm going to mention a story that's on Just the News right now. We went through open source intelligence in the last two weeks, uh, two months, all of it from most of most of it or much of it from the inspector general of Af- Afghanistan, a Democrat named John Sopko, who served uh, Obama, Trump and uh, uh, Biden very ably. He's the guy that keeps saying the Afghan army isn't ready. And in the last month, he issued reports saying Afghan armies, uh, soldiers are defecting. The Air Force of the Afghan uh, National uh, uh, Army is uh, losing all forms of readiness. Five of seven categories dropped down below ready standards. They can't even fuel their own vehicles. They lose 50% of the fuel every week gets stolen or is, is sold away through corruption. He grossly and strongly and repeatedly in the last two months warned that this army was likely to collapse under the weight of a little Taliban army. How does Peter Meyer and Joe Biden get away saying we didn't see this coming? If you were in Afghanistan, you saw it coming. Back in 2012, I'm going to go back to that again, where I was working on a special operations base. Actually, I just got done. I'm going to be posting an op-ed that we wrote here is getting posted on a couple of sites. I can share it with you if you email us. These Taliban soldiers, there was this one occasion that these Taliban soldiers were getting trained by the Rangers in special operations to become the special forces of Afghanistan. We were on guard duty. We had to remove the two individuals because come to find out their entire family was part of the Taliban, the entire family. And the reason is there's no records. That's who we were training, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's no records 
there's no records for us to know who's Taliban and who's not. It's a Stone Age country, yeah. essentially, for records keeping. So when you say we're going to vet them, you can't vet them. These were two guys on a special operations base where when people have credit card problems, we didn't let them on those special operations base. And they were members of the Taliban. But the Biden-Obama administration, hey, let them go because we can't verify. I verified the whole family. What do you mean we can't verify these two? <laughs> so you think mom and dad are in the Taliban, brother and sister are in the Taliban, and this is a black sheep? Unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> but, oh, you gotta let you gotta let them go. We were trained. We trained them how to fight us. So they they were ready. Anybody who was there understands that. Another instance that we had, and you know, you got Meyer and Biden want to bring these refugees here. Think about that. Those guys. If they're in the, the Afghan army, those would get, it's going to be considered refugees. They're like, yep. oh, just translators. This is another true story. We had to kick a translator off that same base. I remember. He was an Iranian spy. Wow. And he was on a special operations base. And the he amount got... of information is, <laughs> we, I don't know where he went. Holy mackerel. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where he went. He was an Iranian spy, but I imagine under Obama and Biden, they probably shipped him home, <laughs> uh, knowing, knowing that administration. Yeah. These are the people they want to bring in. Now, you want to send them to, I agree, we need to take these refugees somewhere because there are Afghans who are willing to die for us. They were. They were right alongside of us, yep. Yeah, I was sitting in the British hospital on suicide watch with somebody one time, and they rolled in this one APU, Afghan ally, and he was told, you give away American positions or we're going to leave you here to die. They made the entire squad drink antifreeze. He was the only one that lived through medical, medical assistance. Wow. And he did not give up U.S. positions. So when you sit there and you think about that, there are those that will would die for us as well. Wow. So I think we need to send these refugees somewhere. It can't be to the United States because of the security risk that right. we're leaving open. We need to send them to some place like Jordan or Turkey or one of those places and those allied spots because those groups are better equipped. Because if you're dealing with a fundamental extremist, I mean, Iran's not going to get any benefit by embedding somebody in Turkey or Jordan. They're just really not. So they'll just come home. But if they're Iranian citizen, one, it's going to be the same. A lot of the cultural things are the same, the practice of Islam, things of that nature, and they're stable Muslim countries that they're going to. So, I mean, that's the type of thing that we can actually look at. We have allies where they're going to better accommodate and merge into the society, and they're going to be more successful. So I'm talking about taking care of them for a future of success, because we can't say Turkey and Jordan are backwards. Those are pretty westernized Muslim nations. So, I mean, but we could send them there. They could adapt better. And these are the stories that these two are ignoring. And if you get on the news, there's hundreds of them. There's a story back in 2012. I'll tell you what. You can look up this story. Guy got shot talking on his wife to Skype. United States military under Obama Biden tried to deny that it happened, and you can see the bullet hole form behind the guy's head. Wow. Oh. And the woman had to call. These blue and green attacks were very often for a while. You didn't know who the enemy was, even in your own barracks, right? They pretty much, yeah, they were really bad. The worst period of time was the eight years of Obama Biden. The worst was those eight years because we had to be, you know, culturally accepting. We couldn't sit there and identify who the target was or really search for them. So these are the reasons why running for Congress is becoming more important. I mean, if you got all these listeners out here, if they really want to get rid of somebody like Joe Biden and Peter Meyer, they can go to www.tom.gop. If I could get every one of your listeners to donate five or 10 bucks a month, we would remove Peter Meyer from Congress instantly. The same for any of your guests that come on there. We need to start putting our money where their mouth is. Otherwise, there's, we're not going to change a thing. 
Did you ever have any doubt that the Afghan army would fall quickly? With the way they conducted withdrawal, I think if Trump was there, the Afghan army would have been given the air support they needed. That's the key, right? The we pulled the air support. They need. We did. When Joe Biden pulled air support, that's when the Afghan army started falling apart. I guarantee it because you're not going to fight. That's when you started seeing them trying to clamor to go into Tajikistan and some of these, the ones near the borders went right across the borders for safety. They just took their families and crossed the border is what they did for safety. I, I mean, there's a lot of Afghans that have already fled that thing that were allies because when you pull air support, how does it do it? The moment Biden gave them air support for two weeks, the Afghan army started to retake different areas a couple of weeks ago. And then all of a sudden he pulls air support and it just collapses the moment he pulls it. That's the one advantage the Afghan army had. They did. I mean, yeah. hey, those guys are just as trained as the Afghan guys because of those stories I gave you. Yep. And how the heck are you going to vet them? Because now you got the Taliban in charge. You know how easy it is for them, for the Iranians to say, hey, we want you to make these 20 people, make all their paperwork that they were part of the U.S. government, since the records are here and they were working with us, and send them through for us. We'll, we'll funnel some money to you guys. That's all they're going to do. Iran's a black hole. I wouldn't put it past China, give them a suitcase A-bomb here in the next 20 years, and I probably shouldn't say that on air, and blow up an American city and China say, oh, we lost it. They stole it, the thing. It's not us. I wouldn't put it past anybody. That's what Afghanistan's been used for for hundreds of years. Wow, it is, and it's probably going to be that way for a long time to come. Tom, this is amazing stuff. Everything that you're doing in raising these issues is going to educate the public because those who haven't been on the ground in Afghanistan have no idea what this is like, but you do. If you're in the White House and you have a chance to talk to the president, what's the advice you give him right now? How do we save faces? How do we fix this going into the mess that we're already in? The Taliban's the one that broke the ceasefire, Mr. President. When one side breaks the ceasefire and you've decided to withdraw from the country, we should blow up every piece of equipment we left there. Mm. As like, that's how the United States saves space and says, okay, that's fine. We're gone. You can have it, but you can't have our stuff. I'd blow up the F-16s. I would blow up the MRAPs. I would blow up the M1 Abrams tanks we left there. We left M1 Abrams, U.S. standard yeah, M1 Abrams tanks there. Yep. And those are going to get sold to China, guarantee it for guarantee money. Guaranteed for money, yep. I would sit there and I would say, Mr. President, the only way you can save it in this space now is light up every single airfield we built, every single piece of equipment we built, and the only field airfields you leave intact are the ones that were used solely as civilian usage. Wow. That's the only thing we leave intact. Hmm. Well, there's a piece of advice that has to get on the table. People have to understand that this is a dramatic moment. It requires dramatic action. Tom, thank you for your first your service to this country. We are so grateful. We wish you well in your political career. Now you've got an exciting several months ahead of you. And I'd like to get you back on the show. Afghanistan is not going away. This race is not going away. So let's get nope. you back on the show soon and keep you in touch with our great listeners. Thank you very much. Again, everybody can go to Tom.GOP, support us. Thanks for having us. That's a pretty easy uh, URL to remember. Tom.GOP, pretty easy. Very good, sir. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we'll wrap things up for the day. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY 
at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. All right, folks. That wraps it up for the day. What an extraordinary day. News is unfolding every minute. We told you about Georgia, about Afghanistan. The former Afghan president now has shown up in the UAE. Looks like he's in the hospital. A lot of things going on. Stay in touch with us day and night through justthenews.com. We will keep you posted on all of the critical developments as we continue also to do some very important investigative reporting. All right. God bless and good night. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the John Solomon Reports podcast from just the news where we're broadcasting in the freedom phone studios right here in washington dc